In the church world, religious world, religious calendar, uh, there's a specific name for this Sunday. <clears throat> and I know that we have different church traditions, and some of us have no church tradition. Um, uh, and that's great. Uh, if you have no church background, this is probably the perfect series for you because you don't bring anything with you from your past or your past traditions or past churches into this topic. Um, but today, on, on the church calendar... It's called Pentecost Sunday, and the exact meaning of this day changed about 2,000 years ago. Uh, so I, I need to give you kind of a history lesson, get, get a running start on what today, the significance of today is. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were three annual feasts, or we might call festivals, that God's people were commanded to observe. They were commanded to uh, make a, a journey to Jerusalem, bring their family, celebrate three annual feasts, and they, they went in this order. The, the first one was the Feast of Passover, or sometimes called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and probably familiar to some of you. That's what we celebrate at Easter. When Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, they were celebrating the Feast of Passover. They were having the Lord's Supper. The, the, the primary focus of that celebration is God saving the Hebrew children out of Egypt, out of slavery, and leading them to the promised land. And so the plagues and the death angel and, and all of that story. Uh, as a part of that feast, we don't talk about this much at Easter, but as a part of that feast, they would bring an offering. That feast happens at the beginning of the, at the, beginning of the barley harvest. And so they were commanded... Take something from the initial harvest, like the very first of the harvest. Sometimes the Bible uses the phrase first fruits. Like the first thing you got from this year's harvest, harvest it and bring that as your offering to God. Fifty days later was Pentecost. Pentecost just means 50. So 50 days later, they would come back to Jerusalem to worship again, and they were supposed to bring an offering in proportion to their total harvest. So Feast of Passover was the beginning of the bar barley harvest. Pentecost was the end of the barley harvest. And once you saw how much you harvested during those 50 days, you took a percentage, you took a proportion of that, and you brought it back and offered it to God. So if, you, if your harvest was bad one year, then your, your offering proportionally was a little bit smaller. If you had a great harvest, then you came back 50 days later and you gave a, you gave a huge offering in proportion to how God had blessed your harvest. Now, there was a feast as a part of this, this celebration, too. There was a meal. And on this particular meal, everyone was invited. Like they, your family, your friends, your neighbors, um, people you didn't know. The Bible refers to them as strangers. You, you invite the stranger. You invite the foreigner. You, you invite the widow. You invite the orphan. Everybody comes to the table at Pentecost. Well, 2,000 years ago, they've been celebrating this for probably close to 2,000 years at that time. And Jesus is meeting with his disciples. If you remember, in the upper room, they're sharing the Last Supper together. Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified uh, that next day. And John especially goes into detail about his conversation with the disciples. Here's part of that conversation 
from John chapter 14. If you love me, Jesus speaking, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So Jesus calls this person an advocate, like Jesus is our advocate. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you. Another part of that conversation, John 14. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. A little bit later, John 16. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So it's his last meal with his disciples, and Jesus said, I'm going away. They didn't know what that meant. I'm going away, but I'm telling you, somebody else is coming, and Jesus says, it's going to be a great thing. Like, it's going to be so awesome when this other person comes. It's going to be even better than me being with you, which his disciples did not understand. Because what could be better than Jesus being with us? Us hearing Jesus teach and walking with Jesus and seeing Jesus minister to people. But Jesus said, I'm going to leave. Somebody else is coming. It's going to be great. Jesus is crucified. He rises again. He spends time with his followers and eventually goes back to heaven. On the day that Jesus is getting ready to go back to heaven, this is his comment to his followers. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is getting ready to go back to heaven. And he says, I want you to hang here because somebody's coming, and you're going to have power, and he's going to walk with you, and he's going to be beside you, and he's going to comfort you, and you're not going to be alone, and this is going to be great. Jesus even says it's going to be a gift. It's going to be a great thing that you're going to have, and the disciples have no clue what he's talking about until Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, the day of Pentecost comes. When the day of Pentecost came... They, the disciples, were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So, this incredible moment. The disciples are all together, and something powerful happens. Something miraculous happens. And then they're not even sure how to describe it. They say it was kind of like wind was blowing. We're not sure. Uh, it, it was kind of like fire. It wasn't really fire, but it was, it was so amazing, this moment. It felt like wind and fire and power. And this, this incredible thing was happening around us. And then the Bible says they all began to speak in other languages, like languages they didn't know. Uh, they, they didn't take Spanish in high school, and they could speak Spanish. They, they, they didn't take French, and they could speak Sp French. It was just crazy, 
powerful moment. Nobody had been through Rosetta Stone, and yet everybody's, they're speaking these different languages. And remember, it's Pentecost, so people are coming from all the nations around, all the countries around. They're all coming back to Jerusalem. And what happens on the, this Pentecost day is as the disciples were speaking, as they were preaching, as they were declaring the gospel of Jesus, no matter where you came from and what language you spoke, you heard the message in your language. Crazy, miraculous powerful moment as Peter stands up he boldly declares the truth of Christ and the gospel and the fact that you could come to faith in Christ your sins can be forgiven and everybody's hearing it in their own language so powerful was the moment that by the end of the day 3,000 people had committed their lives to Christ like they had believed this message that they heard in their own language that they could give their life to Christ. 3,000 people's lives are changed. And that's the day that the Holy Spirit came fully in power to the world. Now, it's 2018. And we're still living in a time where the Holy Spirit is moving in power. The Holy Spirit is still active in the world and in our lives, if we're followers of Jesus. But we also have to acknowledge that uh, most of us come from some sort of religious background. We come from some denominational background or church background. Maybe not everybody. If that's not you, great. I'm glad you're here. But a lot of us, we have like this backstream of traditions and ways we've been taught the Bible and, and what we've been taught about the Holy Spirit and typically, we come from one of two streams when it comes to the Holy Spirit. One stream is a, a, a bit of an obsession with the ideas of the Holy Spirit or an exaggeration or from the stream of seeing the work of the Holy Spirit as experiential or emotional or, or unusual and so if you're from that stream, you pick up on a few things that are in the New Testament, and you think, well, those things need to happen now. Like that we should be seeing unusual things happen, and, and, and maybe we will see some of that, and, and maybe God's not working that way in you, like every day. Like maybe we shouldn't see something unusual all the time, and, and, and even some from that stream associate anything unusual with the Holy Spirit. Like, if it's weird, it must be the Holy Spirit. Like, that's what they're thinking. If it's just, and, and, and there are even places uh, in the world, we can talk about it later, uh, but they've created new weird things to attribute to the Holy Spirit. Like, it's crazy. We're going to make something crazy up and say it's the Holy Spirit. I'm not really sure that's the way the Holy Spirit works. So we have this one stream of the Holy Spirit is very subjective and very emotional and very sensational. And then often as a reaction to that stream, some of us come from a stream where we just don't even talk about the Holy Spirit, right? Because crazy happens when you talk about the Holy Spirit, like weird stuff. And I know some people that are into the Holy Spirit and they're like wacky and I don't want to be wacky. And so some of us come from religious backgrounds, denominational backgrounds where like we didn't say filled with the Spirit or baptized with the Spirit or Spirit in general. Like we acknowledged the Spirit on Pentecost Sunday one time and we didn't talk about Him after that because we didn't want crazy stuff to break out. 
Most of us come from one of those two backgrounds if you've been in church for very long. But when I read what Jesus had to say to his disciples, Jesus said, this is going to be great. This is going to be awesome. Like You're going to want this. You're going to want to keep in step with the Spirit. You're going to want to walk with the Spirit. You're going to want the Spirit to be active in your life. This is a good thing. He even says in Acts chapter 1, this is going to be a gift. Literally, it means the promise of something good, which is what a gift is, right? I mean, if you saw somebody before the service and they said, look, don't get away. I have a gift for you in my car. You're thinking, awesome. I'm getting something good today. Somebody thought about me. Somebody's giving me something good. This is going to be fantastic. Like only jerks say they're giving you a gift and it's something bad, right? Jesus wasn't a jerk. Jesus said, I got something good for you. It's a gift. It's going to add to your life. It's going to make your life so much better. He said, Jesus said, it's going to be better than Jesus being here. I I think Jesus tells the truth. I I think if Jesus said it, then you and I can count on it. So if if it's really good to have the Holy Spirit, if he's really a gift, then I want to know what that's all about. I want to live in that. The, The next four or five weeks. We're just going to dig around in the Bible for for what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. And and here's what I'm asking. I'm asking at least to some degree, you kind of set aside whatever stream you came into into Pentecost Sunday 2018 with, right? Whatever background there is, whatever nervousness you already have about where this might end up, or or whatever sensational thing your mind's already doing, yay, we're going to start seeing, fill in the blank, whatever you, just set that aside. Just take a deep breath. And and let's let's just see what God says about the Holy Spirit. To get us started, to kind of lay the foundation, I I just want to make some general comments about this is who the Holy Spirit is, this is who the Holy Spirit's not. Just lay a foundation, and then we'll start piecing things together over the next couple of weeks. So here's the first thing I, I want us to understand. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. Um, we, Christian belief, uh, is that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are separate in that they have specific roles, they do specific things, and yet they're also one. Each of them is fully God. They're not one-third God, like you're, God the Father's a third, God the Son's a third, God the Spirit. They're not one-third God. They're 100% God, and they are one. And, and, and God's not changing His title. Uh, if you know our family, we, we like the theater and, and, and musicals and stuff like that. Sometimes you, sometimes you go to the Fox and you get the playbill and you open it up and there's a little piece of paper in there that says, the part of so-and-so will be played by, and you know there's an understudy that's playing that part. Somebody else is stepping into that part. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is not God saying, the part of the Holy Spirit will now be played by God. The part of Jesus will now be played by... It's not God switching parts and costumes and hats. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully God. They are separate and they are one. And I can't explain it. I can't explain it. 
Um, there are aspects of our faith that are beyond our explanation. And you and I have to be okay with that. And I, I, this is what I would tell you. If, if there is a God who created the universe and rules over the universe and is sovereign over the universe and you can figure everything out about him, he's probably not that powerful of a God. Like if he fits in your brain, if he fits in my brain, he's probably not that big of a God. We serve a really big God and because we do, we have to accept there are going to be some aspects of his character and nature that I can't logically sort out. We believe that God is triune, that he is a trinity, because God's word teaches us that. And I don't want to get bogged down there today. I'm going to come back to that a little more next week. We just have to accept the Holy Spirit is fully God. We're talking about God. We talk about the Holy Spirit, and I can tell you, don't, don't, Feel the need to give me your illustration for the Trinity after the service. I know all of them, right? And, and all of them fail. All of them fall apart. I know maybe they help when you're a kid to, to figure out the Trinity, but all of them are, are faults in some way. None of them accurately portray the Trinity because we have never experienced anything like the Trinity other than what we're told in the Bible. Another thought. The Holy Spirit is not quantifiable. He is a mystery. And we're going to take five weeks and we're going to study the Holy Spirit. You know what's not going to happen at the end of five weeks? We are not going to have the Holy Spirit all figured out. He's, we're not going to put him in a nice little box and put the lid on him and say, okay, we know everything about the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit's mysterious. He is powerful, and he's moving, and he's active. And there are some things that we can learn about him. I'll get to that in just a second. But you, you and I need to understand there's always going to be a mystery, a beautiful, powerful mystery about the Holy Spirit. Part of it is just the, the nature of spirit. We don't, we don't have anything to associate really with spirit. Sometimes we think of ghosts, but that's scary. Like That's not a good thing to associate with God. We, we, can, we can associate with Father, like God the Father. We get what a father is. We get what a parent is. We understand Son fairly clearly, but Spirit, we don't, we don't really have any personal experience with Spirit. So there's this element of mystery that is always going to be a part of our life with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the greatest teacher who ever lived, if, if anybody could have explained the Spirit in, logically, in logical, tangible ways, it would have been Jesus. And yet even Jesus deferred to mysterious analogies. Here, uh, let, me give you, uh, let me give you one of those. <clears throat> in John chapter 3, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What's the Spirit like? What's the Spirit's work like? Jesus said, mm, kind of like the wind. You don't know where the wind's coming from. You don't know where it's going. You can see its effects. You can feel it. You know when it's there and you know when it's absent. Jesus did not say it's like this, point one, point two, point three. He didn't outline the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus said this is, this is this powerful, beautiful mystery of the Holy Spirit. Even the words that get translated spirit in our Bible 
are this same sort of mystery. In the, in, the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, ruach is the word. It just means wind or breath. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit, the ruach, the breath of God was hovering over the waters. Go to the New Testament. The Greek word in the New Testament for spirit is pneuma. Guess what it means? Breath. Wind. It's mysterious. Powerful. Beautiful. Impactful. But mysterious. That's how the work of the spirit is in our lives. And for all of our study, for all of our digging into God's word, we're not going to come to a point where we've figured the spirit out or we put him in a box or even worse, we're not going to come to a point where we can tell the Spirit what to do. Like, I've figured it out, so I'm going to command the Spirit to do this. I'm going to tell the Spirit. We are never going to get to that point. He's God. He's powerful. And He's mysterious. It's another thought. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is described in the Bible as He. Sometimes people will refer to the Holy Spirit as it, again, because Father, Son, it makes sense. Those are personal. He, pronoun, deserving. Spirit, what do we do? He, she, they, what do we do with Spirit? And so sometimes we default to it. Jesus never called the Holy Spirit it. The writers of the New Testament never called the Holy Spirit it. They referred to the Holy Spirit with personal pronouns. A couple of examples, John 16, this is Jesus I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians, All these are the work of one in the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. It's important to refer to the Holy Spirit with personal pronouns because the Holy Spirit is personal. And because it's hard to be close to an it, right? This is is one of the ways our language separates us from God. When we refer, refer to God, the Holy Spirit, as it, it's hard to have a relationship with it. Anybody remember the Adams family, cousin it? You don't want to have a relationship with cousin it. It creates distance. He creates relationship. The Holy Spirit, all throughout the Bible, is referred to with personal pronouns. Now, it's the Holy Spirit, male or female, that God would say, no, I'm spirit, but I'm personal. I'm relational. That's, <clears throat> that's the next thought that I'd like to convey. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He is relational. In addition to, to thinking of the Holy Spirit as it, sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit as, as God's energy in the world. Like this nebulous blob that's out there doing something. The force in Star Wars, Obi-Wan, that sort of thing. It's this mysterious... He's mysterious. His work is often beautifully, powerfully mysterious. But he's relational. Jesus spoke of the Spirit as a person that, that you could have a relationship. Jesus spoke of the Spirit... As an advocate, we'll define that next week, but somebody that walks beside you and, 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 and helps you and strengthens you and comforts you and counsels you. It's a person. The Holy Spirit is relational, not a nebulous fog or blob out in the world. 
Next thought. The Holy Spirit is not exclusively experiential. There is much you can and should know about the Holy Spirit. I would say in order to truly walk with the Spirit, you do have to experience the Holy Spirit. But life in the Spirit or walking with the Spirit is not exclusively a subjective emotional experience. It's not, well, you felt that and she felt that and he felt that other thing. And so everybody's sort of having their own subjective emotional relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches objective truth about the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is how you should think of the Holy Spirit. This is how you should relate to the Holy Spirit. So our relationship with the Holy Spirit is is not just sort of up for grabs, whatever you want it to be, whatever you feel and whatever you experience and whatever your emotions are. The Bible gives us objective truth that we can come to and we can read and study and know what the Holy Spirit is like. Again, there's aspects of the Holy Spirit that's always going to be a mystery. But the parts that we're taught, the, the parts, the, the information we're given, we should pursue. There's a false dichotomy often in, in our Christian experience, and certainly when it comes to the Holy Spirit, that we either have an emotional faith or we have a, an intellectual faith. We either have this sort of thriving heart faith or we have this sort of boring intellectual faith. That's not what the Bible teaches about our faith. The Bible says our faith should be all of that. That we should have an emotional faith. That we should respond emotionally to God. He has emotions. And we should respond intellectually to God as well. We should respond experientially. It's not carving out, well, this is what my faith is. Our faith is all of that. It's intellectual, it's emotional, it's experiential, it's objective, at times it's subjective. If God promised us that sort of faith, I, I want to know what that is. Like, I want to experience it. I want to live in that. One more. The Holy Spirit is not a nice bonus to the Christian life, and sometimes we treat Him that way. He's not a nice bonus. He's essential. Sometimes, again, depending on our stream of denomination and religion and and church, we know that we need to know God the Father. That's a pretty good idea of what He does. Uh, We need a relationship with God the Son because Jesus died for us and rose again. you got to know Him. But then for some of us, our tradition leads us to think, well, you know, just a little bit of the Holy Spirit's enough. We don't really have to know a lot about the Holy Spirit because God created everything and Jesus redeemed everything, and that's kind of enough and so the Holy Spirit's kind of the special sauce on the side. Like you just kind of, like a Chick-fil-A sauce. You just kind of dip your nuggets in every once in a while. You don't want too much of that. You don't want too much of that because that get crazy. And the Holy Spirit, He's not the seasoning. He's not the special sauce. The Holy Spirit is essential to our faith. We'll talk about why in this series. You cannot separate your faith and your walk with God from the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's not see Him as as optional to my growth in Christ. I mentioned at the beginning that there were were three annual feasts. There was the Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. There was the Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost that we've been talking about today. And then months later in the fall, uh, there's what was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, not to get into all of the details. It was primarily a celebration 
of the time the, the Hebrew children were wandering in the desert. Like they, they didn't have a home. They were going from Egypt to the promised land, and they were having to tear down their tents and move and set up their tents and tear them down and move and set them up. So it was a celebration of this temporary dwelling place. So everybody would go back to Jerusalem, and they would make their own camp, basically. They would make their own booth or or. Or, or their own tent, and so it's basically a week of camping. Everybody goes back, everybody camps out, and they have this huge week-long celebration. Uh, we get a snapshot of that celebration in John chapter 7. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So it's, it's the Feast of the Tabernacles. Part of the, part of the celebration was what was called a water ceremony. The priest would take a, a jar, empty jar, and he would go down to just outside the city, and he would fill it with water. And then he would parade it through the streets. And people would be lined up on both sides. And they would be shouting and singing and celebrating and praising God. And he would walk the jar of water all the way up to the temple, and then he would pour it out at the altar. The people would chant a phrase that in English means, raise your hand. And what they meant was... Lift your hand all the way up so that the jar is completely empty. Pour all of the water out. Pour everything out. This was a symbol of the, their need for refreshing. This particular festival took place during the dry season. So riverbeds are dry, wells are drying up, water's difficult to come by. And this was a reminder to the people that this is what God does. He refreshes us when we're dry, when we're weary, when we need fresh water, flowing water. Flowing, living water, it was sometimes called, was, was symbolic of life versus stagnant water. So th this was a celebration that, God, we need you to pour out refreshing on our land. We need you to pour refreshing out on your people. It was also symbolic of what the prophet Joel had said in the Old Testament because Joel had said that a day was coming when God would pour out His Spirit on all people. They didn't really know what that meant, but a part of their celebrating was one day God's going to do this. We don't know what it is. It's going to be awesome, but God's going to pour His Spirit out. Now, the verse says that it was the last and greatest day of the festival. On the seventh day of the festival, the priest would make this water ceremony trek seven times, back and forth. And people would line the streets, and they would begin to cheer. And you can imagine, every time he'd go by, six, seven, all the way, people would get louder, and the celebrations would get louder. And he would go, and seven times, he would pour this water out. So the scripture says, on that day, on that day, when there was all this celebration, one of the ancient historical records uh, from uh, Israel says that if you had not seen the last day of the festival, you did not know what celebration really was. That's how crazy this day was. So much celebration going on. 
In the midst of that, Jesus says in a loud voice, because everybody's shouting, like everybody's praising, Jesus says in a loud voice, if you'll come after me, this water you want, this refreshing that you want, it'll be in you. It'll flow out of you constantly, all the time. And then John, narrating later, once he had figured out what Jesus was talking about, John says in the next verse, by this, Jesus meant the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So John finally figured out, you know what Jesus was talking about? This refreshing that we need inside of us, flowing out of us. It's the Spirit that, that Jesus was going to send. This constant where we have unmet desires and unmet need, where we're dry, where we're empty, where we're tired, where it's dusty and cracked and our life is dry, Jesus said, the Spirit can refresh that in you. I mean, I don't know about you, but I want that. I want that to be real in my life. I want that to be true in my life. I want the Spirit of God that will flow out of me like like springs of living water all the time. I want to live in that. I want to know that. And I want us to know it as a church. Whatever Jesus wanted when he talked about the Spirit, I want it. Because I think Jesus knows what's best for us. I want it for our church. And we're going to have to work through some detail. And we're going to have to work through some history. And we're going to have to work through some definitions. But the Spirit is a gift. He is a good gift to you and to me that will bring springs of living water out of our lives. So let's figure out what that means. God, thank you that you guide us gently in your word You point out where we need to follow more fully, where we need to believe more faithfully. God, you you lead us where we need to go. And we all come from different backgrounds. Maybe some of us have no church backgrounds. Some of us have backgrounds that have been all in on the Holy Spirit. Some of us have been hesitant about the Holy Spirit. We just want to know what Jesus meant. When he said, this will be a good thing. This will be a gift. Springs of living water are going to flow out of you because of the Spirit. In your driest days, in the days when your life is cracked and parched and dusty, the Spirit's going to be there. He's going to be there with you, and he's going to bring refreshing. He's going to bring fulfillment. He's going to bring healing. We want to know that. We want want to experience that in our personal, individual lives. We want to experience that in the life of our church. The power, the beauty, the mystery of the Spirit of God poured out for us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.